HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meet and 3, we have stories about food in large quantities. From bulk buying groups and reasons for stocking up, to creative solutions for handling excess waste. We have someone picking up our corks from the wine bottles and they repurpose them to make buoys for boats and, and, and like shoes and all these different things. Yeah, because of the COVID, uh, everybody like uh, isolated at home. But uh, to see the people face to face is still exciting. So we kind of treat like a chance to say hello to the people and to the friend. Listen to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcast. Well, hello. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. This is the 268th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guests are two top restaurateurs who have collaborated on a new organization focusing on restaurant safety, and I will introduce them fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to put safety first. Whether we're talking about our personal well-being or that of others, we should always prioritize our health and care. It's essential in life to feel safe and be safe in our everyday activities, as without it, we simply can't enjoy life and be productive. So let's take out the worrying and focus on what matters most, healthy lives. It's a non-negotiable. That's my tip today. Now, I'm very excited to have my two guests joining me today. They are first, Carlos Suarez, founder of Casa Nella, a New York City hospitality company that operates a collection of French and Italian restaurants in Greenwich Village, including Rosemary's, Bobo, Claudette, and Rowie's. 
And my second guest is Jan de Rochefort, founder and CEO of Bocaria, a lively Spanish tapas bar and restaurant with seven locations across New York City, Washington, D.C., and Chicago. Together, Carlos and Jan co-founded Safe Eats, a nonprofit organization between New York City restaurant owners and healthy and health and safety experts at Zero Hour Health, whose mission is to support restaurants to keep their staff and guests safe. So hello, Carlos and Jan, welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Nice to be here. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to chat with you. I think this this new organization you guys have teamed up on is really awesome and important. And uh, I want to hear all about the details of it. But before we get to that, I always start out with my guests a bit on their background and how you got into the industry. So, um, Carlos, you, you want to start us out a little bit with what, what got you um, to become a restaurateur? Sure. Uh, well, it starts, I think, uh, with my parents' passion uh, for food. Um, you know, definitely uh, fostered a, a love of uh, food in me at an early age, and uh, you know, went to went to uh, university in Philadelphia, studied finance, and and like many of my colleagues, went into a career in finance. Uh, unlike many of my colleagues, uh, my career was uh, very short lived. Um, I was pretty uh, pretty miserable with that. Uh, career track, uh, and decided to pursue this passion for food, um, and decided to take a job with a really large restaurant group here in the city uh, at the time called BR Guest, and you know just started at ten dollars an hour uh, answering the phone, um, and worked my way up in the company uh, over you know a period of a few years um, before deciding to uh, to leave and and attempt to to open my own restaurant. So um, not a traditional route into this industry, but, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's been uh, very rewarding. Yeah. And what was your, your first restaurant and, and what year was that? Uh, so that's going back to 2007. That was uh, Bobo Restaurant, which, uh, which is still open. Great. Yes. And I remember meeting you at Bobo many years ago, too. Indeed. Um, yeah. Great space. Beautiful place. So Jan, what about you? What what brought you into the hospitality industry? Um, I think that um, th there was nothing in my background that really predestined me to uh, work in the restaurant industry, or certainly to own restaurants. Um, what what started as a side project when I was working in marketing to open a bar with a few friends um, soon morphed into a much larger project than I even understood at the time. Um, I, I started a side project and I got caught up in it and I got caught up in it so much that I ended up doing the one thing that they advise you not to do, uh, which is quit your day job. Um, the, the bar turned into a restaurant and uh, the side project turned into a full-time gig and I haven't really looked back. That was, in, that was in 2001, actually. We were still raising money for this restaurant when 9-11 hit and uh, we, opened, um, we opened at the end of that year. Um, it was a restaurant called Suba on the Lower East Side, um, which lasted about eight years. And that was a, that was an education in the restaurant industry, uh, which led me a few years later to open my first bokeria in 2006, uh, on 19th street. Wow. Was, yeah. I remember, I remember that opening and you've gone on now to, to open multiple locations. 
Um, it's, it's interesting. Both of you started out with your own places pretty much the same time. Um, well, yeah. with, with Bocaria and, and, um, Bobo. and Bobo. We actually have some of, uh, some furniture at Bobo, uh, was taken from, uh, Jan's second location. Um, I think it was called King Cow. Was that the space you took Jan down in Soho? Yeah. 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 So we shared a contractor, uh, a very That's resourceful funny. fellow. Well, Phil, Phil Morgan and, uh, John Cole were the contractors and I think they brought some of the, uh, the old banquettes from uh, King Cow and set them uh, that's up funny. in the garden at Bobo. That's funny. Wow. Small world. <laughs> so did you, um, how did you guys, is that when you met and how did you, I, I don't know, have you been we kind met, of. We met a few years later and I really, I, I can't quite remember how. Do you? Uh, I think some mutual friends. Um, yeah. You went to Georgetown and I think uh, I yeah. knew one or two people there too. Uh, through my cousin Gwenny, who who was you know a Georgetown alum. So how so how so now you've gone on to open multiple restaurants. Like what was what was your day to day like? Let's say before March and in operations, and then how did things start to start to change and pivot with not just your restaurants, but with your um, what you, you know your 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 activities. I think in my case, my day-to-day life before COVID was very much about, um, you know, focusing on building the company on on growth. Uh, we had signed a location in Nashville. We were looking at additional locations in, in Florida and Virginia. Uh, and really, you know, the way that I would characterize it was maximizing the upside. It's like, you know, how high can we go and how well can, how, how strong company can this become? And it shifted quite radically, really radically in the span of a few days to just absolute survival. Carlos and I actually had dinner on the the Wednesday of the week that we both shut down. And uh, it, it felt surreal to know that the storm was coming, to sit in a full dining room um, that, and, um, and just trying to figure out how quickly this was going to happen and when, and two days later we were shutting down. So, you know, the first few weeks after that were survival mode, trying to get our bearings, get my bearings on what the world actually looked like at the time, what to expect for the next few months and how to survive it. And Sherry, I would, I would just share, you know, a very similar uh, story, perhaps on a smaller scale than Jan's, but, uh, you know, we were coming off of a record year in 2019. Uh, we were heading towards a record Q1, um, you know, in, in early March, um, you know, and all of that came screeching to a halt. Um, you know, we, we were in construction, uh, to open a restaurant in May, uh, and obviously all of that, you know, uh, came to a full stop while we figured, you know, tried to figure out, um, how to, you know, keep the, keep, keep ourselves in business. Um, you know, when, when the dust settles, you know, and, and I think we're still trying to figure it out, um, six, seven months later. Yeah. Well, no one, no one saw this coming. So, I mean, so what, what happened So with, with your restaurants in March, um, and, and then coming, coming, moving forward with, um, into where we are now, how did you come up with this collaboration with Safe Eats and why did you 
think it was important to have at your establishments? Sure. So if, you know, if we can um, rewind back to kind of March, April, um, you know, both of us uh, had closed our restaurants, um, you know, out of uh, concern for the safety of our teams uh, and, and obviously our guests. Um, wondering, you know, how do we how do we operate restaurants safely in a pandemic? Um, you know, I didn't feel prepared for this, and uh, I didn't feel that the industry was really prepared for us for this. Uh, the New York City Department of Health was largely uh, silent. Um, so, you know, I, I reached out to Jan and said, you know, what are you doing? How, you know, how do, how do we uh, navigate through this? And and you know, Jan's much smarter than I am. He had already started working. I don't know about that. With a group called Zero Hour Health. Um, if you recall, you know, you guys were already working with Zero Hour Health. Um, you introduced me to uh, to Rosalind. The yeah. CEO, and, you know, I was blown away. These guys had already been uh, testing for COVID at the Super Bowl back on, I think it was January 28th, um, fateful day. Um, so they, they were very experienced with, uh, COVID they've been, you know, in the health and safety space, uh, advising restaurants for better part of 30 years, um, you know, overseeing, you know, 50,000 restaurant locations across the country. So finally I, I, I realized, you know, in, in zero hour health, here's the health expert, uh, that not only, you know, I need to, to, you know, advise on operating our restaurants safely, but the industry needs. Um, in lieu of, you know, government agencies stepping in, uh, here's, you know, a practitioner who can provide a single source of, you know, accurate information and, and guidance. Um, so that was, that really formed the backbone of, you know, trying to support our industry uh, in, through an unprecedented time by kind of partnering with uh, the experts who, who really knew how to navigate the, you know, through this. Yeah, so... Is this so? How did you? How did you? I guess form the organization, and is it Jan? Are you, is it something um, that you've implemented across all of the bokerias in DC as and and uh, Chicago beyond New York, New York City? It is. It is, and so you know, I think this was started quite informally. Um, with um, Zedek, Rosalind from Zedek, ourselves, and, and a couple of other advisors. Um, we're now in the process of applying for 501c3 status. And um, the way that um, it's developed, you know, we wanted to find a way to um, clarify what was the, the, the best way to operate. Um, at the time, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty. I think that things are a little different today. There, there's a lot more certainty, both about, well, I wouldn't even call it, I would, I would hesitate to call it certainty, actually, but there's certainly a lot more that we think we know about um, COVID, about the methods of transmission, and about how to operate safely than there was then. Um, but we wanted to create a standard that was rooted in science and that was at least equal to government mandates, if not, if not stronger. So, so what, what are the different, um, guidelines that to be safe eats that you need to have and how can restaurants, other restaurants get involved and become safe eats certified? 
Sure. So, you know, there's some pretty straightforward uh, steps, uh, such as masks, social distancing, uh, and sanitization protocols. Uh, I think that we've all been, uh, you know, confident um, in for, for many months. Uh, we're, we were pleased to see, you know, New York State uh, recently adopt some of, you know, the protocols that we've been championing, uh, which include, you know, staff screening, temperature checks, uh, for both staff and guests and contact tracing or contact information from guests, you know, to support contact tracing efforts. Um, so there's a lot of overlap there with, you know, uh, city and state uh, requirements uh, here today uh, was not the case, you know, several months back. Uh, but, you know, going forward, what really separates uh, Safe Eats restaurants um, is that they also have, in addition to all of those protocols, uh, they have direct access 24-7 to uh, health and safety experts through this app, this Zetic app. Um, so should they have questions, there are physicians and nurses uh, at the other end uh, to provide expert advice. Um, and the other, the other distinction of, you know, Safe Eats members is that their restaurant uh, managers are all Safe Eats certified. So they, you know, uh, have passed um, a test on COVID and, and public safety. And in terms of, you know, uh, restaurants out there, you know, uh, keen to, to sign up, I mean, it's as simple as going to, you know, uh, the website, uh, safeeats.org uh, uh, and signing up. Yeah, as someone who's been in, in New York City through this pandemic and um, used to dine out all the time and, you know, started dining out again and or doing takeout uh, when when it was available, um, I've I've um, I decided I've, I've had a, a couple I've had several experiences. Actually, on my last show, I said something like I'd been out to eat like seven or eight times. And I realized that's like this month um, because I decided to start my own little chart because I was noticing I was just observing what was happening at restaurants, whether um, the menu was at a QR code or a, a printout menu or uh, they did a temperature check or they had a bag for your face mask. And I don't know, I just started my own little chart and I realized I've been out oh, about 30 times and I've been in, to Rowie's. Um, I went early in June and then this weekend I was at uh, Rosemary's. Um, and it's it really, I mean, the service that, that was has been so wonderful and um, the protocol, and I felt very safe and um, welcomed. And I, I'm due to go to to Bocaria, <laughs> but um, I guess I'm I'm wondering like some of these things that I'm seeing. Whether I went in to use the bathroom at Loring Place and my temperature was checked, and like which like what it's it's just I found my experiences across the board have been have varied with every restaurant, and I know Loring Place is a part of. Um, safe eats. So is that something that's on like the guidelines to, to do? Um, and, and is there like a whole list of these protocols for, for each restaurant that they, they need to um, adhere to? We certainly have a, a list of, you know, we call it the safe eats pledge and each of our members uh, has posted the pledge, you know, publicly uh, in their dining rooms. So both, you know, staff members and, and guests alike can see uh, the various steps that that the rest, you know, that the owner ultimately uh, has uh, pledged to uh, follow through on. But specifically, what, what 
are you asking in terms of a, a particular protocol that you're not sure about or? No, I was, no, I, I mean, I was, I was just wondering, um, just in general, um, with, I mean, you're saying on, there is a list on the website of, and the protocols, and I was just giving a little bit of my experience with it too. Um, being that it's, it's been, it's been interesting to observe and, and see how some, how restaurants are, um, I guess, taking the safety a bit more seriously than others, um, and I think it's I think it's super important. And I guess I'm also wondering, like feedback you've received from customers, if if that's something that you're getting um, and helping you in the decisions you're making with with the um, service. Uh, well, both uh, our staff and guests have, uh, from the very start, uh, have commented on how you know the safety protocols. Uh, give them a, a great, a much great, uh, improved sense of confidence, um, you know, in, in their safety, you know, whether it's going to work or coming to dinner. Um, so, you know, we felt very positive, you know, uh, and encouraged uh, about the steps that we've taken uh, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I think it's really important that you've put this together. And I want to ask you my question from my last guests. On episode 267, I had on Darren and Greg Bresnitz of Snacky Tunes, which is their show on Heritage Radio, and they also have a new book out, Snacky Tunes, Music is the Main Ingredient, Chefs and Their Music. And they asked, so they said, so since they, we all know the downsides of this pandemic, they want to know what signs of hope and excitement do you see from your lessons learned while going through this process and how things might improve the restaurant industry, if at all? Well, I think that one of the one of the things that is very hopeful to me coming out of this is that uh, something like restaurants um, that, in a sense, was taken for granted by a lot of people. It was just you know feature of life. I think people are a lot of people realize just how much restaurants contribute, not just in terms of providing a place to eat. Uh, and a a home meal replacement. And I certainly know a lot of people are tired of cooking for themselves, Uh, but not just as a meal replacement, but how much it contributes to the life of the city. If you walked around New York City today and you didn't have the outdoor dining that we do, it would feel night and day different. Restaurants and and, and restaurant workers bring life to the city. They they bring an extra dimension to our social lives um, that this pandemic has caused many people to appreciate to an even greater extent than they did before. So I think that's a real positive. Um, I think that the the level of um, instability, the lack of a, a safety net that exists, not just for restaurant workers, but for all um, hourly workers in this country has also come into relief. And I personally hope that there is a greater political will um, to create more of a safety net for uh, for hourly employees in this country. And, you know, without wanting to veer into political territory, I think the same is true of healthcare. You know, we've just gone through, we're still in the middle of a pandemic and a large proportion of this country does not have the access to healthcare that is considered a, a right in most wealthy countries. 
And I think I absolutely agree with those who say that restaurant workers should have access to, to health care. I, I but I take it a step farther. I think that any hourly worker, whether you're in a restaurant or in the food processing plant or a hotel or any other similar position, should have access to health care. And I hope that, you know, having gone through this collectively, we've developed a greater political will uh, to make sure to turn that into reality. Yeah, that's 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 great. Did you have anything to add to that, Carlos? Um, I would just say that, you know, our, I think I agree 100% uh, with everything Jan said. And I would simply add that, you know, the independent restaurant community, um, perhaps its great strength is, you know, our independence. And, and the pandemic has obviously uh, brought many of us together. Uh, and I think that that could be, you know, very powerful uh, going forward. So I'm hopeful that we remain, you know, as connected uh, as we've become, uh, as we had, you know, go forward. Now I would add one other thing, which is not true just of the restaurant industry, but I think in general, you know, Americans and, and particularly New Yorkers spend a lot of their time looking to improve themselves, looking to make more money, and also spend a lot of time looking at those who have it better, those who are growing their business faster, those who are progressing their career, those who have more money, those who are better off in, in one way or another who we think are better off. And I think that this pandemic has turned a lot of our gaze 180 degrees and made many of us realize at a time when we objectively actually had less because many of us saw our incomes drastically reduced, but it's caused many of us to turn our gaze 180 degrees and realize that um, we, we actually have it pretty good. And I hear that from you know, other restaurant owners, I hear that from other entrepreneurs, I hear that from friends, and I hear that from employees, I hear that from managers and, and others. I think it's taught us to appreciate the things that we have perhaps much more than we did before. Yeah, yeah, well said. And on that note, let's take a little break and we will come back and we'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. We'll have my solo dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Deneau North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% percent 
reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DenoneAwayFromHome.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guests today are Carlos Suarez, the founder of Casanella, which includes Bobo, Rosemary's, Claudette, and Roe's, and Jan de Rochefort, the founder and CEO of Bocaria Restaurants, with locations in D.C., Chicago, and New York City, and together they co-founded Safe Eats, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to support restaurants to keep their staff and guests safe. So Carlos and Jan, it's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such <laughs> as chocolate or vanilla. Um, I I don't I don't care if you shout it out together or one of you wants to go Got first. Got it. <laughs> Why don't we do this? Carlos, Carlos, you want to go first every time? That way we can keep this somewhat civilized? <laughs> I mean, as civilized as it can be because I'm probably going to disagree with your choices. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's see how this goes. Okay. So, so here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out, of course. Eat out. Yeah. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Cocktail. Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? Oh my goodness, a la carte. A la carte. <laughs> oh, there's, there's not much daylight between us so far, is there? Well, so far, I think you can like <laughs> now also partner to open a restaurant together. With so. <laughs> um, how about small plates or large plates? Oh goodness. Uh, small plates, top us uh, all the way. Yeah, there's no way I can answer anything but small plates, really. <laughs> Communal table or chef's counter? Communal table, for sure. Chef's counter. All right, there you go. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? <laughs> tipping. <laughs> yeah, tipping. Pizza or pasta? Mm. Pasta. Pizza. Red, white, or rosé sangria? I think you even have more than those choices, too. Red, <laughs> yes. What do you say, Jan? I say rosé. Rosé. Fabulous. Margin. Okay. My last two are cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Oh, dessert. Absolutely. You're wrong. <laughs> that's, just, that's just wrong. I'm just not friends. <laughs> and uh, Manhattan or Brooklyn? Really? No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll be living in, in Brooklyn in probably six months' time, but I'll say Manhattan right now. I'm going to go with Manhattan, too. Manhattan is much revolved, but I'm going to stand up for it. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. That's the game. That was fun. It was interesting. Interesting to hear. Yes, very similar, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. So for industry news, I thought um, we could talk a bit about this COVID-19 recovery charge. Uh, there was an article from the New York City Hospitality Alliance, which actually I know is partnered with you guys as well, um, 
and they they had a piece COVID nineteen recovery charge into effect on ten sixteen, on September sixteenth, the city council passed legislation legislation that will allow restaurants and bars to charge a COVID-19 recovery charge. And there was also a piece um, when this first came out um, in the New York Times talking about talking about this. So um, as restaurateurs, who, who better to to talk about the this? This is a you know, the subject. So what's what's your take on this? Are you, will you be implementing uh, recovery charges at your restaurants? We we do not plan to right now. And the reason we, we don't is that I think this could become a very contentious issue with guests precisely because it is discretionary and in the sense that restaurants have the option of whether to charge it or, or not to. Um, I think that guests could easily um, claim that this feels sneaky, um, that it is not this transparency that it's imposed at the end of a meal and that if we needed to make more money to cover our PPE or, or other COVID related expenses, we could raise our prices. So as of right now, we do, we do not plan on, on imposing it. What about you, Carlos? Yeah, I'll just add, yeah, I, I don't see any uh, prize for being first here. Um, <laughs> definitely uh, going to, you know, wait and see um how the public reacts uh to this um i agree with jan it's uh potentially you know a volatile issue um you know certainly uh very appreciative of the city council of you know of taking action uh to support the industry um it's fantastic uh, obviously wish that it was uh, mandated um that all all restaurants had to apply the charge uh, that would remove, you know, uh, this kind of game situation where some restaurants will, some won't. Uh, but, you know, say la vie, let, let's see how the public respond and, and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, I mean, that it's not mandatory. And also, I mean, from what I've read, it seems some people think, well, maybe like 10% seems like a, a very large percentage, maybe three to 4%. Yeah. Um, it seems extreme. And and that I think, you know, maybe, maybe the undoing of it, um, we'll see. I have heard that, you know, large restaurant groups like Let Us Entertain You uh, in the Midwest, you know, uh, uh, applied, a, I think it was three or 4% charge uh, earlier this year, um, probably early summer, uh, to all bills across their company. And, uh, you know, guests really weren't phased by it. So uh, there's, you know, high, high probability that, you know, those lower sur- lower percentage surcharges uh, will be maybe a non-event for guests, uh, but a 10% charge might uh, might cause, mm-hmm. some, cause some tension. That's a good point. How much was the charge that let us continue imposed? I believe it was 4%. Yeah, yeah. That- of a different thing, but my, my concern would be that you know, let us continue is a very large group, and they, they certainly have resources and, and client loyalty that um, the rest of us can only envy. Uh, my concern would be that it becomes a discussion item as to why you're imposing this and why this number. Mm-hmm. I just think I fear it could become very divisive at a time where I think we're certainly very appreciative of the guests that we have. Um, and I think that this is a great time to strengthen the relationship yeah. between 
uh, guests uh, between uh, neighborhoods and and the restaurants, uh, not uh, not introduce elements that that could be divisive. Right. And what what's the status of all your restaurants between outdoor dining and, and indoor dining? Are you doing the twenty five percent? Are you planning to get uh, great heaters outside and try to make it or bubbles outside to make it through the winter? Um, we, we are doing just about everything that we can that we can think of. So if they give us twenty six percent, we'll take that extra one percent. If they give us fifty, we'll take all of it. Um, I, I don't think there's anything that we can possibly do um, legally to um, to increase our capacity and save our businesses that we're not doing. Yeah. yeah. Likewise, you know, three of the four restaurants, uh, you know, all started outdoor dining pretty. Uh, pretty early on, you know, we moved to indoor dining on 930. Um, you know, one of our restaurants, Bobo, uh, isn't open simply because it doesn't have kind of that outdoor opportunity. Uh, and, the, you know, the indoor capacity level is is rather uh, is rather small. So 25% uh, would just have us bleeding more cash. Um, but obviously looking at, you know, opening when we get to 50%. Yeah. yeah well, you're, in, you're in a unique situation there in that you don't have the, where, where we've been able to get outdoor dining. Obviously, that's give us, given us a bit of a running start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I, I ended, I mean, your block with Rowies and Rosemary's and it's it's I've, I've been finding like your block and there's certain places in, in New York that just have such good energy. Um with with the multiple restaurants in a row or the, the city street block, the open streets. Um, and then there's parts of Manhattan that I see that are that are more ghost townish, like yep. in Midtown. Um, but there's yep. been it's been great seeing the transformation. And um, yeah, I'm trying I've been trying to support places as much as possible. So, um, you. I you know, I I, I my heart goes out to you guys. It's such a, it's been such a hard time, but getting through it, getting through it. So I'm going to share my solo dining experience now, which is an outdoor experience I had at Il Buco at Mustrador Maram. So here's the rundown. The location, 21 Ocean View Terrace, Maram Hotel, Montauk, New York. The concept, an all-day alfresco summertime pop-up from a beloved downtown Manhattan Italian restaurant at a barefoot luxury resort. So the owner is Donna Leonard, the executive chef, Justin Smiley, and Mustador's creators are Fernando Troca and Martin Topaluca. So why did I go? Well, because I decided to escape to Montauk for a couple days to get out of the city for some fresh air and some fresh beachside eats and uh, I've, I'm a fan of Justin's. So my experience. So this was a couple of weeks ago in September. Um, I guess you'd say I was holding on to summer. I went out to Montauk. I was staying nearby the Maram Hotel. I actually walked there from my hotel along the beach, which was really nice. And I found this outdoor restaurant, a very charming takeout area, uh, 
beautiful resort there and they had a chalkboard menu. I asked if Justin was there. He happened to be there, which was great. So I got to see him. Um, I ordered and my food came out about 10 minutes later and I sat outside by the picnic tables and ate. So what did I get? I had Zatar crusted yellowfin tuna with Carolina rice and olives. I had market vegetables with roasted beets and Jimmy Nardello peppers and flute crudo. Um, and Justin had sent the fluke and the peppers out for me. Um, it was definitely more than I was planning to get. And I had a pomegranate Pellegrino. My take, everything super delicious, fresh. Uh, really loved the yellowtail and the beets. Uh, those were probably my favorites, but it was all delicious. Uh, the ambiance, gorgeous, serene oceanfront setting, large patio and fire pits to stay warm. I'd say it's perfect for a casual alfresco dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit, mastador is a fancy word for counter. So it was counter service. And Montauk is known as the end. It's the easternmost tip of Long Island, also known for their fishing and surfing. Personal fun fact, as a seafood lover, what did I eat the whole time I was out there, seafood. So I also got some lobster rolls at, at lunch, or well, it's not really lunch. It's called the lobster roll, a.k.a. lunch, and the clam bar and fish and chips at Gossman's. The cost of this meal was $55, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, take me back to Montauk. Website is marammontauk.com. There you go. Good to good to be out there sitting outside and having some seafood. <laughs> So um, it's, yeah, it was great. It was great to see him out there too, you know, um, is being, it's been, you know, seeing, seeing chefs and restaurateurs being able to pivot during this time and kind of, kind of do something different, um, which, which is, which is cool. So my next guest is Leah Cohen. She is the chef and owner of Pig and Cow and a Top Chef alum, and she has a new cookbook out, Lemongrass and Lime, Southeast Asian Cooking at Home. So Carlos and Jan, can you please ask a question for Leah? Well, I had, uh, yeah, I had a question. Sorry. Go, ahead. Um, Go for it. I, you know, uh, I've been cooking quite a bit of uh, pad thai at home. Um, <laughs> being uh being stuck uh upstate and i would love you know i look forward to her book uh to see if uh there's a pad thai recipe in there i'd love to to see how she kind of uh you know um makes hers uh unique and special cool that's a good question yeah should we just ask her yeah, one my, or my question So my question would be, um, what's your comfort food? What's your sort of guilty pleasure comfort food? We, we, know, we know this is a, a tough industry. We get home tired. So when you're tired and you want something to sort of cheer you up, what is that? Great question. I will find out the answer and um... That's the show. I, I greatly appreciate you guys coming on and I wish you the best. I'm a big fan of both of, of, of you and your restaurant groups. You. And I Thank wish you much continued success in getting through this, this unprecedented time. Thank you so much, Sherry. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Thank you. See you, see you soon out, out dining, hopefully. Indeed. 
Yeah, look, would love to see you out. So hope to see you soon. Thank you. My guests today have been Carlos Suarez, the founder of Casanella, including Bobo, Rosemary's, Claudette, and Rowies, and Jan de Rochefort, the founder and CEO of Boqueria Restaurants in D.C., Chicago, and New York, and they co-founded Safe Eats. You could check that out. Go to their website. It's safeeats.org. And their own res- their own web- websites are casanella.com and bocariarestaurant.com. You can also follow along on social media, Instagram at Safe Eats Official, at Rosemary's New York City, at Bocaria. And there's there's more ats for all of Carlos's restaurants, but if you you can you can find them through through those channels. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Carlos and Jan. And thanks to Lois, Rachel, and Kim for helping out with this show. I'm Sherry Bayer. Till next week, be safe and be well. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.